Dad, where did babies come from? Dad, stop. Think. This is a huge important question in your daughter's life and needs to be handled delicately. Too much information will lead to a lifetime of therapy. Not enough information will also lead to a lifetime of therapy. But you do need to respond with honesty and confidence. Think. What would Elliot do? Hmm. You should ask Mommy. That's her department. Every time he sees smooth me, move, Dad. his smooth eyes light move. up. For well-considered smooth moves, Elliot is a master. Simply looks at me the Look same way he did when we first met. For him, it's love at first sight every day. For me, it's heartbreaking. Loving someone who's living with dementia is not easy. For support, advice, or to make a donation... Visit DementiaSA.org. You're listening to Vuga Online. You are rocking with the best. Welcome to Healthcare Hour with Colleen Quist. Healthcare Hour is all about healthcare, as you can imagine, but it's about meeting people in healthcare. It's about seeing that the the folk who hang out in healthcare do it because they care about other people, but also need to care about themselves. Also in this program, we look at topics and subjects that people don't really talk about, or we don't know enough to talk about, or often we are outraged about things and then we outrage for a while and then it all goes away and we think that the, the problem has been resolved, but it hasn't. More about me, I'm a life coach, I'm a business coach. I work with people in healthcare to make sure that they filled up so that they are able to overflow. And today's show is really about speaking to a man who has been very verbal. He has been... Um, very brave and at the coalface of saying, no, we need to look after healthcare better in South Africa. South Africa is very much a country where, for me personally, I've always been very proud of how our doctors are trained. I've always felt very confident in that I would be looked after properly. And unfortunately, I think the confidence and the trust in our healthcare is starting to fade a bit. So when we come back, we're going to meet Professor Shabir Madi, and we are going to be having an in-depth conversation with him about healthcare. The Africa Center for Work-Based Learning is a professional development center for professionals who aim to improve their professional standing. This means that the learning programs we run are more than just academic programs. They are work-based programs that focus on leveraging your current experience as a professional to build your overall profile. A year down the line, the Africa Center for Work-Based Learning is developing into a preferred center for professional development in Pretoria, with eight professional development faculties including accounting, teaching, entrepreneurship, as well as IT and many more. For more information, go to acwbl.org or dial plus 27127517608, the Africa Center for Work-Based Learning, where work is learning.
broadcasting worldwide online 24/7. It's Vuga Online, your inspiration radio station. Station. Welcome back. You are tuned to Healthcare Hour with Colin Quist. Today we're having a, an in-depth look in healthcare and what's happening in healthcare. And you can see that healthcare in South Africa has been in the news quite a bit lately. I'm joined today by Shabir Madi, who is the Dean of the Faculty of Health Sciences and Professor of Vaccinology at the University of Witz, or Witwatersrand. He also holds the position of Director of the South African Medical Research Research Council Vaccines and Infectious Disease Analytics Research Unit, which is abbreviated to VIDA or maybe VADA, and is co-director of the African Leadership Initiative for Vaccinology Expertise, called ALAT. Prof. Madi completed his MBBCH degree at WITS in 1990. He specialized in pediatrics and graduated in 1996. He subsequently completed his PhD at WITS in 2003. He specialized in intensive care and currently holds a subspeciality in infectious diseases. He has previously served as the executive director of the National Institute for Communicable Diseases between 2011 and 2017, and he's rated by the National Research Foundation as an A-rated scientist with international recognition for his research on vaccines against life-threatening disease in childhood, in pregnant women, and against respiratory diseases also on studies on vaccines in people living with HIV. He led the first two COVID-19 vaccine studies undertaken in Africa, and he's been involved in multiple epidemiological studies in COVID-19 in South Africa. He's the recipient of a number of awards, including the South African Medical Research Council Platinum Medal, which is a Lifetime Achievement Board, and the Academy of Sciences South African Science for Society Gold Medal in 2021. Also, he serves on multiple international advisory committees, including the World Health Organization. So, Prof, welcome. Hi, Colleen. Thank you for having me on your show. Yes, thank you so much for joining us. Um, what, as I said, what I've always admired in you is, is that you speak out verbally. But before we do that, let's look at your, your journey into health and how you, um, how you have come to be a doctor, how you did um, vaccinology, and of course, how you've come to become deep. Yeah, so Colin, it's been probably a series of accidents that have ended up where I am. Uh, in so far as uh, certainly when I was in school, I didn't have uh, any aspiration to become a medical doctor. Uh, that was more of an aspiration on, my, on the part of my father, uh, who was a teacher. And my, uh, I was gravitating towards doing uh, chemical engineering rather than medicine. Uh, but I got accepted into medicine, and at that stage, being a person of color, there were sort of fairly limited opportunities for a person of color to be independent in a professional field other than to do medicine. Uh, so I started in medicine, uh, and a year into doing medicine, I decided that I really did not want to do that. I wanted to do chemical engineering. And I was in the process of changing at the university, only to be told by my, uh, by the people that were funding me, that had offered me a bursary, uh, that they would only fund me to do medicine. So unfortunately, I had to stick it out and I completed doing my medical degree uh, at VITS. Uh, after doing that, it's only when I started to specialize in pediatrics that I developed some sort of a passion for medicine. 
and more so uh, from a research perspective. Uh, because in the 1990s, early 1990s, just at the time of the dawn of the new uh, democracy in South Africa, uh, what was being experienced in the hospitals uh, where I was uh, based, including at Krasani Baraguanas Hospital, is large numbers of children being admitted for what were completely vaccine-preventable diseases. So as an example, something such as measles, for which we've had vaccines since the 1960s, uh, children in South Africa simply were dying in large numbers because they were unvaccinated. And that raised the flag that to be able to sort of impact at the global level and at least at the national level, uh, one needed to do the appropriate research in country and use that as a tool to advocate for changes to take place in government when it comes to policy and strategy. And that is what really led me down this pathway of pursuing more of a career in research in medicine rather than being a practicing clinician. I did spend some time being a practicing clinician more on a part-time basis, at, again at Krasvane Baraguanas Hospital. I spent about a decade in the ICU, uh, but that was working one week a month, while the other three weeks were sort of dedicated to research again. Yes, so thank you for that. As you said, by accident, but of course, there are never any accidents. So we're very glad that you have come in um, and you're making sure that we don't, you know, that our children aren't dying of measles. Yeah, absolutely. I see in New York that, that we have, um, you know, polio has popped up again in New York. Uh, correct. And it's just not about children in South Africa, it's on the rest of the continent. So if you look at the global number of children that die each year, uh, r roughly about 50% uh, of the 5 million children that would die before the age of 5 are deaths that are occurring on the African continent, which only makes up about 18 to 20% of the birth cohort globally. So there's a disproportionate amount of children dying on the African continent relative to the number of children that are born. Uh, but, and, but the real sad part is many of these deaths that are occurring are preventable. So these are not deaths that are occurring from conditions that we don't have sort of high-tech and uh, high, uh, highly costly medication to treat the children. They're rather dying from things that are very much uh, preventable. And many of these preventable diseases are vaccine-preventable. So you mentioned polio as an example. Uh, certainly, I think the lesson from the United States, the United Kingdom, uh, in terms of what they experienced with a single case, of what they refer to as vaccine-derived poliovirus paralysis uh, is that unless we're able to really get high levels of coverage uh, across the globe, uh, no country uh, is completely immune from these sort of outbreaks. Uh, because polio is similar to COVID, it's easy for the virus to transmit. In this particular instance, the cases in the United Kingdom, United States, as well as Israel, is cases that are arising because of circulation of a strain uh, that's part of the vaccine that is sort of reverted and uh, becomes, it's able to uh, cause polio even in settings that where polio was previously thought to have been eradicated. So I think the central message is that we've got tools to prevent a large percentage of the deaths that occur in children under age of five. Uh, and again, the important thing when we look at tools such as vaccines, is unless we get equitable distribution, the impact of those interventions is diminished uh, and it comes at a cost to all countries, not just to countries that are not uh, getting adequate access. We're way more connected than we like to think. Absolutely. Yes. 
Okay, and then so from Prof of Vaccinology, which you still hold that chair, you are now also Dean of the Faculty of Health Sciences. Uh, that's right. Uh, and like you mentioned, I've done all of my training at WITS, uh, and I think WITS offers huge amount of opportunities for people that are training as well as staff that are working. And I would like to believe myself to be an example of such uh, in that the type of opportunities that uh, arose, arose at being at WITS are probably opportunities that one wouldn't get to experience, probably, and I wouldn't be exaggerating, uh, anywhere outside of South Africa. Uh, and it's really about us sort of uh, leveraging on those opportunities. And the real uh, reason why I chose to sort of uh, start or apply for the post of Dean is I see huge opportunities for WITS to punch beyond where we're currently punching in terms of potential. So uh, when we look, WITS is the largest medical school across the country. In fact, if you look at the specialists that are produced each year, more than 50% of the specialists are produced at a single institution in a country. There's 10 medical schools, but more than 50% of the specialists are produced at WITS. Uh, each year we graduate just under 400 medical students. So we're certainly the largest uh, university in the country and probably on the continent in terms of output. Uh, but at the same time, although we've got researchers that do an excellent job, there's still huge potential for to get more staff as well as postgraduate and undergraduate students interested in doing research. In addition to that, uh, and that's obviously me speaking as a researcher, but in addition to that, uh, the one aspect where I believe what is lagging behind uh, not necessarily compared to our South African counterparts, but compared to international standards uh, and high-income countries, is that we're not necessarily training that caliber of healthcare worker that will be fit for purpose in the 21st century. So medicine has undergone massive, massive uh, advances in a really short period of time. And I think COVID-19 uh, is an example of a disease that's been with us for just over two years now, yet the amount of research that went into it, our understanding of the virus, how it operates epidemiologically, is just phenomenal over such a short period of time. And that is all leveraging on the tools that have come into play over the past decade or so. So one thing that really uh, excites me right now as an example is where we're revising our curriculum uh, of the medical program. It will extend to the dental program as well to really equip our medical doctors, our dentists, and other healthcare professionals, professionals to be competitive internationally. Uh, but for them to be competitive internationally, we need to be training them with the latest uh, state-of-the-art tools, as well as uh, using the latest knowledge in the field of medicine. So there's this curriculum revision that's underway currently, uh, which I believe is going to keep fits to where it belongs and that is being internationally recognized for the caliber of individuals that we graduate. Okay, so thanks for that, um, Prof. Madi, and very much that you're training people for the future, you're wanting them to be future fit. And when we come back, we're going to look at the basics of, are the basics in our hospitals supporting those, those doctors now, or those future fit doctors? But let's pop out for a break. No one decides yeah, to go into you? debt. It creeps up on you. Hey. Slowly. Ah! Debt follows debt. <laughs> follows debt. Unless you do something about it.
face your debt problems before they cripple you. It's time to do something. Stay woke with Vua Online Radio. Colin, please let me know if I'm speaking too fast. I know I do tend to speak fast. No, it's all good. Good, okay. <laughs> okay, welcome back to Healthcare Hour with Pauline Quist. We are speaking to Professor Shabir Madi, who is the Dean of the Faculty of Health Sciences and Professor of Vaccinology at the University of the Witwatersrand. Let's come back to those basics that we were speaking about where you you're saying we're going to train doctors and we we're failing well Vitz is failing at the moment to train doctors for the future but recently dr tim de Mayer spoke out he sent a public letter to say that we were failing babies children at rahima musa would you like to unpack that for us is, is that are we are we doing the basics yeah, unfortunately not. Uh, and I'm speaking specifically to the public health sector, and we obviously need to have a discussion about the interface between the private and the public health sector, where more than 70% of healthcare spend is taking place in the private sector. But even then, uh, across the country, there's probably one province, and I'm not afraid to say this, it's one province with a functional healthcare system, and that is the Western Cape. Uh, and they've taken time to get to where they are. But COVID-19, uh, they were exemplary from multiple levels in terms of how they managed the pandemic, how they allowed uh, for practitioners to get on with what they were meant to, what was expected of them, uh, and very little by way of corruption and everything else that bedevils many of the other provinces, provincial health, uh, uh, pro provincial health authorities in the other provinces. So what you, this example that you cited with Tom, Dr. Tim DeMeyer uh, is really a manifestation of what is a crumbling public healthcare system in Gauteng. And you are correct. Uh, I can talk about curriculum revision, but that curriculum revision uh, means very little if we don't have proper facilities where we're able to train our doctors, our nurses, our dentists. So the two are completely interlinked. And unless we work with Gauteng Department of Health in terms of really bringing our hospitals out of what is a dire state currently, both from an administrative perspective, from a governance perspective, as well as in terms of the actual type of facilities that exist, uh, the training of what will be seriously compromised. And this is something that we can only do with government, which is a complete interdependency. But at the same time, I think what it is also forcing us to do now is to reflect on where we're sending people for training and how do we actually leverage on what exists in a private sector so that we're able to offer our undergraduate and postgraduate students an exposure uh, which is much more expensive than what would only uh, exist in a public sector. So the public sector needs to be strengthened. We need to correct the deficiencies uh, that they have crept in over the past two decades, unfortunately. But in parallel to that, I think we compel uh, to also start engaging and having a much more robust relationship with the private sector. Uh, and COVID-19 was another good example where the two sort of came together at some level, but not uh, at a level where we're wanting it to be. So yes, uh, Gauteng, uh, Gauteng, the public sector in Gauteng, the part in Gauteng is experiencing massive challenges and it exists in many of the other provinces, probably except for the Western Cape. And it's not to say that there isn't enough money that is allocated to health. And I think we need to get away from that notion. 
Just looking at amount of per capita expenditure in the public sector in South Africa, we spend more than almost any other country on the African continent in terms of what is spent per capita in the public sector. Yet our health outcomes are poorer than what exists in many other countries. Even a country such as Kenya is an example that probably spends about one-tenth of what we do in the public sector per capita. Their health outcomes in terms of the number of children that will die before the age of five is actually better than what it is in South Africa. The number of children that will be fully immunized in Kenya is higher than what it is in South Africa. So there are serious problems, not necessarily just because we don't have money. We do have the money. It's the manner in which the money is used, which is the big issue. So it's efficiency of the system that is really uh, creating problems for us. So I'm not one of those that subscribe that NHI, the National Health Insurance, uh, is the blueprint to uh, sorting out our issues. In fact, if anything, the NHI will probably destroy what remains of uh, healthcare in South Africa because of what unfortunately exists in government. And that is an inability to basically manage systems once they are put into place. So to your point, Prof, we've got hospital maladministration and we've got rampant corruption. So we need to fix those basics before we can build on it. Otherwise, whatever we build is just going to topple. Um, and to your point also, where we're spending so much money per capita, but we're not seeing the results because is it the money is not going into the people, it's not going into the patients in the first place. Well, like I said, we've got a working example that the amount of money allocated uh, based on the proportion of the population uh, is adequate to deliver good healthcare services in the public sector. And the example of that is the Western Cape. So the fact that it works in the Western Cape and is not working in other uh, provinces uh, reflects an inability of the other provinces to basically uh, be efficient in terms of the manner in which they go about using the resources that's allocated uh, to the province. Uh, and it is multifactorial, uh, but you are correct. Uh, if we don't sort it out at the level of the governance in a province, uh, unfortunately, whatever is lacking at that level then starts filtering down downstream. Uh, and right at the bottom end are then healthcare workers that unfortunately are not necessarily doing what they're employed to do either. And it's not all healthcare workers, even if a minority of healthcare workers are not pulling their weight because of poor governance in terms and management of oversight, uh, that impacts on the rest of the healthcare workers and places a burden on the other healthcare workers and eventually places a burden on the entire healthcare system. So again, to emphasize, South Africa spends a huge amount on healthcare, uh, but our the resulting outputs from that is nowhere close to what it should be. And this is not even benchmarking against other countries, but simply benchmarking internally in South Africa against the one province where things seem to be working reasonably well. Okay, so let's go back to doc, um, Dr. Tim DeMeyer, where he spoke out and there was definitely public outcry and industry backlash. And at the time you were quoted as saying that it's a ludicrous situation instead of resolving the issues raised by the doctor at the coalface, the department has chosen to shoot the messenger. Um, and you also mentioned that it's not like our healthcare professionals have not raised these issues multiple times through the correct channels, but nothing's happened. And here you said, well, you quoted as saying, how much louder can our doctors and clinicians on the ground speak? Yeah, and But now the backlash has gone away. Prof, the 
it's all quiet now. And, you know, as the public, do we just assume that it's all sorted? Well, uh, in terms of Dr. Tim the Mayor, that is very much sorted. Uh, and there isn't going to be any further uh, action taken against Dr. Tim the Mayor. And that is the word from Gauteng Department of Health. Uh, unfortunately, the initial reaction from Gauteng Department of Health was really short-sighted. And it was almost a knee-jerk reaction using a regulation that existed during the time of apartheid where in the 1980s a very similar sort of scenario arose where doctors adverts in our hospitals were raising concerns about patient care and at that stage uh, the Department of Health uh, under the Transvaal Provincial uh, Government uh, sent out letters of warning that they were going to be dismissed unless they retracted uh, what they were putting out in the public domain and Gauteng Department of Health seemed to have taken a leave out, that, out of that playbook of the apartheid uh, regime and embarked on a similar course of action. So it was a really unfortunate situation and really disappointing that Gauteng Department of Health didn't reflect on the merits of what was being raised by Dr. Tim de Meyer, but rather tried to silence him. Uh, but again, it spoke to a bigger issue, and that is that healthcare workers in this province are fed up. Uh, they just fed up in terms of what they expected to do and the type of conditions under which they expected to be delivering quality healthcare services. And that's the reason why you saw healthcare workers across the spectrum very much sign up within a short period of time. I think it was less than 24 hours, they were close on to 30,000 healthcare workers that signed a petition uh, condemning the action of Gauteng Department of Health. And it speaks to that we've got healthcare workers in Gauteng that are really committed to providing a service in the public sector. But they cannot be taken for granted and they cannot be expected to be kept quiet when they see the sort of injustices that are being perpetrated against, uh, which is the, against the public, uh, and especially that part of the public that are the most vulnerable and that are for, compelled and don't have any option but to use a public health care service. It's, and so it's from there that the I Am movement has come about? Uh, absolutely. Uh, and it's really uh, calling for accountability. These are the healthcare workers, again, that are fully committed to the public health sector. Uh, and they're calling upon a change. They're calling upon a change in terms of governments, in terms of governance, in terms of oversight, in terms of how we operate our facilities, how we make use of our resources. And they're calling out against any individual that attempts to silence any of their peers. So on that, let's go for a break. Not that we're silencing you, Prof, but we will continue with that when we're back. How do you know the life or personal coach you are about to work with is who they say they are? How do you know if they can do the job? At the Africa Board for Coaching, Consulting and Coaching Psychology, we can tell you. So before you share your secrets and spend your money, check with us first. Visit www.abccp.com or call us on 012-751-7608. The ABCCP, the professional body for coaches. Broadcasting worldwide, online, 24-7. It's Vuga Online, your inspiration radio station. Welcome back. You tuned to Healthcare Hour with Pauline Quist. Today, I'm speaking to Professor Shabir Madi, who is the Dean of the Faculty of Health Sciences and the Professor of Vaccinology at the University of the Witwatersrand. Prof, you've been talking about the fact that healthcare workers 
across the board, across the spectrum, are no longer willing to be silenced, that they're speaking out, that they, they're not hidden. And that's where that whole I am movement is coming about, in that people have signed their names to it. They haven't been anonymous. It's I am, Shabir Madi. I am, you know. Um, and so let me ask you then, in terms of what to Dr. Tim DeMeyer was complaining about, yes, he's not suspended anymore and that's sorted out. But the reason why he was complaining about the conditions in hospital, has that been sorted? And where is the relationship between Vitz, you know, Vitz has signed the agreement, um, what's happened in, in that field? Yeah, so certainly uh, the issues that Dr. Tindermeyer was raising, those issues certainly haven't been shorted out. Uh, and in fact, if I would be brave enough, bold enough to say that they probably get worse by the day. Uh, because uh, if you allow something to con continue disintegrating, it is going to disappear eventually. Uh, so th those issues have not been sorted out. There are some sort of quick fixes. People are working together. The Gauteng Department of Health has come to the table to listen to the concerns of the IM movement as well as of the staff at the Ima Musa Hospital. So there's some dialogue that's happening, which is a positive sign. Uh, and But again, a lot needs to be done. And these sort of challenges in the healthcare system in terms of resources are not challenges that are going to be sorted out overnight. Uh, it's going to take uh, probably another five years uh, if we start working now to get our public health care service back to where it was in the early 1990s, which was reasonably, which was performing reasonably well. So we're not talking of massive advances, but we're talking about stopping the ongoing disintegration of the public health service, which is our current priority, and then to start building on it again. So, like I said, it's a long-term plan. But at the same time, as you do point out, there is uh, at last a memorandum of agreement that was signed between Gauteng Department of Health and VITS. And this now, to some extent, places joint uh, responsibility on the two institutions to ensure that we work towards a common goal of providing quality healthcare service. But remember, the bottom line is that these uh, facilities are all managed by Gauteng Department of Health. So the spirit of the memorandum of agreement is that WITS can become partners, including on oversight of those facilities, but it's really, the ball is really in the court of Gauteng Department of Health to ensure that they lend substance to the spirit of the agreement, in that they don't just, they're not just having signed off on this agreement, but we actually implement it to the letter of the agreement. And that is what we now need to get right. So in fact, tomorrow there's another meeting uh, that's been convened by the Public Services Commission under the Premier's office to discuss exactly the same issue of a memorandum of agreement, not just between VIT and Gauteng Department of Health, but also the other universities in the province and Gauteng Department of Health. Uh, but again, uh, we've got a fabulous document when it comes to the memorandum of agreement, uh, but hopefully it's not what is so uh, typical of South Africa, where we have all of these great policies which are not implemented. And it's really the implementation of that memorandum of agreement to the letter of that memorandum of agreement that will determine whether WITS would be able to assist Gauteng Department of Health in rescuing healthcare in the province, and certainly in Johannesburg. Yes, so thank you for your directness in that, because um, a, stra a strategic document, uh, uh, writing on paper, oh, look how well it's written, means nothing if it's not implemented. Uh, absolutely. Like I said, uh, the success uh, 
of what happens between WITS and the Gauteng Department of Health depends on Gauteng Department of Health adhering to the Memorandum of Agreement and vice versa. Uh, from the part of WITS, we are certainly fully committed to implementing the Memorandum of Agreement as quickly, as, as urgently as possible, uh, but we really require the province to come to the party. Let's ask you then, as the public, the public must not allow things to go quiet. They must keep up the pressure. They must keep up the spotlight on. Absolutely. And I think the public in South Africa, unfortunately, are very passive, uh, including uh, people that make use of our public sec health sector. Uh, when patients are being abused, they need to raise those issues as soon as they're being abused. If they're not receiving a quality of health care, they need to go public with it. If they go into a clinic and the mother is told that bring your child back in a week's time because we don't have the type of vaccine that your child requires today, that is sinful. It's unacceptable for the public, for the public sector not to be having basic uh, health care, not being able to deliver basic health care. Uh, when clinics are running out of, clinic, out of medication, when nurses are not at a clinic at 12 o'clock or 1 o'clock in the afternoon, and the same thing goes for doctors, when patients are sitting in long queues because the doctor has now gone off to his private practice, those are issues which the public need to recognize, and they need to start raising those issues in the public domain. Uh, because, again, those things shouldn't happen if we have proper management in the, in the facilities, and it shouldn't happen if there's proper governance at the level of the province. So when you have those sort of deficiencies creeping into the system, it speaks to an issue of lack of management or inadequate management in a facility and inadequate governance at the level of the employer, which is Gauteng Department of Health. Yes, and then also something else that you've been quoted on and that's not in my name, where we now have um, people based on the color of their skin or the language that they may speak being denied access to Califong Hospital, um, you know, and it's the right to access of basic health services, a basic human right. Um, so there are two issues here. The one issue, and, I, and I'll be unequivocal about this, any healthcare worker that uh, deprives or refuses to manage an individual, irrespective of the race, the color, the nationality of the individual, is going against the very tenets of the Hippocratic Oath, which indicates, which they swear to, and basically indicates that they will not withhold treatment irrespective of the nationality of the individual, the race, the gender, or anything else of the individual. So if that's being done at the level of any healthcare worker, that is going against uh, the oath which all healthcare workers subscribe to, and those individuals need to be taken to task at the highest level, including the possibility of disciplinary hearings and being deregistered as a healthcare worker. The other side to this obviously is an issue that South Africa does have finite resources and can't be expected to be providing healthcare to the rest of the continent. Uh, and that is a reality that we need to face up to as well. But managing that isn't the responsibility of the healthcare worker, and managing that doesn't come into play when an individual is desperate and seeking health care. That needs to be managed again at a governance level. It needs to be ma managed between governments. And that speaks to the issue of uh, the application of other laws in a country which would avoid 
this sort of occurrence where people that are not registered in the country are basically accessing health care. But that uh, denying of health care cannot take place at a time when an individual is in most desperate need, and that is when they're presenting to a health care facility. So like I said, uh, the issue of uh, foreigners in the country that are not registered uh, and they're seeking health care, that's a broader issue that needs to be sorted out between countries, but not at a time when a person is desperate and in need of health care. So thank you for reminding us of the Hippocratic Oath, of seeing that uh, that the right is to to healthcare. It's a basic human right. Correct. And even our constitution, uh, our constitution, the constitution is quite explicit that healthcare is a fundamental right. And anyone in the country that's in need of healthcare should be provided healthcare within the constraints of the resources available to the government. Okay. And then based on constraints of resources, we then have more maladministration that's been in the news where um, we allegedly um, are ordering sutures and we surprisingly get skinny jeans. Yeah, I mean, that's pure corruption. Uh, and it's again speaks to poor absence of or poor control measures uh, when it comes to governance. It also speaks, unfortunately, to the issue of management of, uh, of our healthcare services. Uh, in terms of the manner in which we go about uh, appointing uh, chief executive officers, the manner, the, and unfortunately one of the realities, and I think Tembisa Hospital is a good example, when you get political deployees, uh, rather than employing people based on competency, then you create an, envi an enabling environment for this sort of abuse of the system to take place. And that is what is happening. And it's not just at that hospital. So the Western Cape works. And the reason why the Western Cape works is that I know a number of people that hold senior positions in the Western Cape that have based in government, uh, in the Department of Health, that have their background as being members of the African National Congress, the South African Health Workers Congress, the United Democratic Front. But they've been put into those positions not based on their political affiliation and ideology, but rather based on their competencies. And that is an important lesson that other provinces need to start taking to heart. That if you don't have the right people in place, if you appoint people based on the skin, on the on the color of their skin, or based on the ideological, political ideolo ideological affiliations, you are not getting the best person to do the job. And that comes at the cost eventually. And the cost that the price that is paid is usually paid by those that are dependent on the healthcare system when the healthcare system is no longer functioning because of poor management as well as because of corruption that creeps into the system. So the very people who we're meant to be looking after are the ones who suffer. They're also the ones without a voice or feel like they have no voice and must just accept whatever's handed to them or what's not handed to them. It's really abuse of the highest level. Yeah, and it's really unfortunately that the patients uh, regard themselves to be disenfranchised. Uh, I mean, for any, in any country that's got a functioning public health care service, patients place demands on the health care service. If you go to the United Kingdom and the NHS, uh, when there's a waiting list of a week for a procedure, that hits the news headlines. Uh, so we need, we need uh, patients to become uh, advocates in their own right. And they need to start demanding higher quality of health care which is something that they should expect of government 
and something which government should be providing, not just in the private sector, but also in the public sector. So we really require more patients not to take government to court and to sue them uh, and create uh, issues around uh, what might have gone wrong in facilities, but rather to be vocal up front when they're not being uh, adequate, when they're not being provided uh, the type of health care which they should expect to receive uh, in the public health care system. Okay, so thank you for that. As I said, what I love about you is you don't tiptoe. There is no, we can't say this and we can't say that. You direct and you say it. Which gives me, and I'm sure all my listeners, all our listeners, huge confidence in the future of healthcare, that we are going to see um, those those future doctors that you're talking about. But let's go for a break and then we'll let you have your last word to the public and also to your fellow If you're enjoying this interruption and find the sound of my voice captivating, you may be experiencing extreme boredom. Try new, fast-acting Subaru Impreza in hatch or sedan, formulated with symmetrical full-time all-wheel drive. Cure boredom fast with new Impreza. Stay woke with VUGA Online Radio. Welcome back. You are tuned to Healthcare Hour with Colin Quist. We've been having a direct, non-tiptoe look at healthcare in South Africa. We've been looking at the corruption which has rampant the maladministration and also Professor Shabir Madi has been saying to us that if we are going to be find ourselves in the future, we're going to have to change things now. And he's also been saying that we we are brilliant as a country in terms of having strategic documents that are brilliantly written, but unless we implement, we may as well not have the documents. So in closing, Prof, what message do you have for the public and also for your fellow healthcare doctor, uh, nurse, or allied healthcare professionals, all of your healthcare professionals out there? Yeah, so I think the first thing is the message for healthcare uh, practitioners that are out there, and those are nurses, doctors, the allied healthcare workers. And the reality is that they're doing a marvelous job, both in the public sector as well as the private sector. And South Africa can still boast to be having one of the most advanced healthcare systems on the continent, again, both in the public as well as the private sector. And that is all because of the efforts and dedication of the majority of healthcare workers. Among the healthcare workers, unfortunately, in the public sector, there's a minority that do abuse the system which places an unnecessary burden on those other healthcare workers that are fully committed to providing quality healthcare. But all in in general, and I think with COVID-19 especially, uh, healthcare workers really need to be applauded for their efforts and their contribution to uh, the country as a whole. Uh, And South Africa would have had much higher mortality rates from COVID-19 had it not been for the spectacular effort of many, many healthcare workers. But. Having said that, uh, when we read the news headlines, especially in a province such as Gauteng, it seems that all is uh, gloom and doom when it comes to healthcare uh, service in the province. And to some extent that is true, but I do believe that there is the type of uh, insight uh, in the private sector, there's the willingness on the part of the academic sector, and there's probably a willingness more recently on the part of the province to start finding a common agenda that we can work toward and actually start rescuing what remains of the healthcare, especially in the public sector. So I'm fairly confident that we are going to start seeing a turnaround. It's very difficult for me to comprehend things getting any more worse 
than where we currently are. And I'm hoping that we are already at the bottom of that pit. And now it's really for us to figure out how to reverse uh, what has transpired in the course of, unfortunately, it's been the past decade at least, uh, when it comes to the neglect of our healthcare system. Uh, but like I said, it requires for everyone to pull in the same direction. And I do believe there is a framework that currently exists for us to pull in a full direction, but it requires the complete commitment on the part of all parties for us to be successful with that common vision of uh, providing quality healthcare service to people in this province and beyond. Thank you so much. Um, yes, we hope that the bottom of the barrel, we reach that and the only way is up. So yes, let's commit, let's do that. Um, and we have your backing. You must certainly um, reassure us in that you're outspoken and you don't tiptoe. So thank you for that. Okay, thank you, Colleen. You've been joined, tuned to Healthcare Hour with Colleen Quist. My guest, Professor Shibia Madi, has been explaining to us that we have probably and hopefully reached the bottom of the barrel in healthcare and the only way is up and we have the power, we have the ability and let's change things. Remember that you are loved and that you matter. And I'll see the you home time. of inspiration every every day. Most people give up on themselves easily. You know the human spirit is powerful. From news. Countries across the globe have been hit by the COVID-19 virus. Views. There's a global trend uh, to see an increase in GBV incidences, specifically domestic violence. 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 Sports. What do you say? It's a really good ball. It's Shabalala. And music to inspire you every day. This is Vuga Online, your inspiration radio station.